Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're in a series of messages entitled, A Look at the Book, a somewhat unusual approach. We're giving a synopsis of a book, each book of the Bible, book by book, so that we understand what the books contain and how the Bible fits together. Today, after our overview last week, today we're starting in the book of Genesis. Here's the key concept this morning. God sets his plan of salvation in motion from the very beginning. Genesis, as the name means, is a book of beginnings. In Genesis, we see the beginning of the world and the beginning of time, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of sin and the human experience. And we also see the beginning of the promise of redemption and hope. In Genesis, we see the first marriage, the first family. We see the first rolling out of nations and language diversity. And we see the initial steps that God takes to choose one family to turn that one family into a nation from which one person will come who will be the Savior of the world. Jesus tells us in John 7 that Moses is the author of the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible. When he wrote them, we're not sure. It seems likely that the later books in the Pentateuch, the first five books, were written during the wilderness wanderings. But the book of Genesis doesn't reveal any details that show us a date. Although I have a suspicion that Moses wrote Genesis during the first 40 years of his life, living in the courts of Pharaoh with the uh, libraries of Egypt at his disposal. During a time in his life when he was coming to his own awareness of his Jewish heritage, he writes to explain to the Jews how they became captives in Egypt and why they're destined to live in a promised land called Canaan. Genesis gives the nation its theological foundation. It shows that the God who revealed himself to their father Abraham is the one true God, the maker of all. It tells us that humanity rebelled and that God is separated from us due to our sin and that salvation will come through his chosen people, the Jews. I've chosen to help us understand the book of Genesis by outlining for you today four foundational events and then four foundational people. Foundational event number one is creation. One verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is self-sufficient, complete within himself. He didn't need to create. The act of creation itself was a ministry of love. And creation has implications for humanity and for human culture. The way we behave toward one another will be determined by who and what we think we are. If you toss out creation and you believe in only a naturalistic closed system with no power beyond the natural laws, you will see humanity as simply the animal that's currently on the top of the food chain. You will believe that we stay there by being smarter and faster and more ruthless than the rest of the animals. And the society you create will be animalistic. To the victor goes the spoil. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Survival of the fittest, baby. These will be your creeds. But if you see that we are created on purpose 
in the image of God, that God is unfolding a story called history and we have a role to play, then you see us as having dignity and life as sacred. Creation speaks to us about the love of God and His investment in us. But the second foundational event is the fall. Turn with me to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we see the tragic story of how sin enters the human experience. And in verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. These are painful verses. We can imagine that if we could time travel back to the Garden of Eden and lurk behind a bush there, we could call out to Eve, Eve, don't do it. Or Adam, put that down. Because this is the moment where sin and guilt entered the human experience and we've been paying the price ever since. Genesis shows us the fall here in chapter 3, but right here in chapter 3, it also shows us the glimmer of hope the sense that God has a plan. As God pronounces the, the consequences because of sin, in verse 15, he's actually speaking to that serpent, and he says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The offspring of the woman was Jesus and the implication there is the, that Satan will seek to harm Jesus, but he will ultimately be victorious in that struggle. Which brings us to the third foundational event in Genesis. Turn just a few chapters to chapter 6 and we read of the events of the flood. Because you see, Adam and Eve yielded to external temptation but by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, it is the inclination of the human heart to do that which is evil. Starting our reading in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sinful humanity breaks the heart of God, but notice the blessed contrast with one man, Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And because he stood up and stood tall for his relationship with the Almighty God, this one man becomes the hope of the world. We should learn from that. We who are followers after the one true God, we must stand tall and stand fast for what we have in our relationship with God. Most of the time, most people are middle-of-the-road folks. Most of the time, most people want to blend in and just go along. But when we stand up because of who we are in Jesus Christ, we reflect the hope of the world. 
So Christian, let me ask you a question. Are there people you know who will hesitate to tell a dirty joke when you're around? If so, rejoice and be glad that they see a difference in you. Is your business reputation such of absolute integrity that there's not going to be any discussion of cutty corners or dirty dealing when you're in the meeting? If so, rejoice. That's what ought to happen for the people of God. Noah stood out. He wasn't perfect, but he was seeking to be a follower of the one true God. And he became the hope of the world. The flood tells us two things. It tells us that God does judge sin. But it also shows us that he makes a way of escape. And the ark is that tale. Escape is made. But there's a fourth foundational event in the, old, in, the, in the book of Genesis here. And it's found in chapter 11. Go ahead and turn there. As the story continues, Noah and his family, of course, survived the flood. But by chapter, ele chapter 11, a new civilization is beginning to be built. But in the meantime, Noah's family has received this command in chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That was God's intention. In other words, he says to this now surviving family, spread out. Exercise your dominion in the earth. Press order and civilization and faith into the whole earth. But spreading out was scary. And instead of spreading out, the society that developed stayed together, built technology in a great city as a monument to themselves. And by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 4, it says this. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. A direct defiance of the plans of God. Spreading out sounds scary. Spreading out sounds risky. Why not just stay where it's comfy? Why not just celebrate our own success to ourselves, with ourselves, by ourselves? But God says that's not the plan. And so in chapter 11, the story that we now call the story of the Tower of Babel, verse 8, it says, The Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. Why? Because he confused their language. And we see the, the birth of language diversity here in chapter 11. And they call the place Babel, which sounds like the Hebrew word confused. And they spread throughout the world. All of these events are the prologue. All of these events tell us why it is now that God has to set aside for himself a special people who will be the source of salvation for all. And that part of the story begins to be told in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we meet a man. His name is Abram. Abraham will, uh, Abram will one day be called Abraham. And he will be the father of this family who will be the source of the Savior. Abram grew up in a place called Ur, which is a city located on the Euphrates River to the east of the Promised Land. And there in Ur, he was brought up in a pagan culture, wor worshiping many gods, polytheistic idols. We know of 300 gods that were worshiped in Ur. They governed every facet of life. A tradition tells us that Abraham's father, Terah, 
was a salesman and that what he sold was idols. And if that's the case, then Abram's family was immersed in this pagan false religion. At one point, Terah moves his family from Ur to Haran. I want to show you a map of the region. Now, these things are small, but way down on the right-hand side, you see a little dot called Ur and a yellow line up to Haran. What that yellow line follows is the trade route. The trade route followed the river. They didn't cross the desert. And so that was up and down to get into, the, get into the promised land. Why I want you to visualize that is this, because Terah, when he moved the family for business reasons from Ur to Haran, he got Abram halfway in his journey. God's unseen hand was guiding even this pagan seller of idols to get his family halfway. But here in chapter 12, the rest of the journey is envisioned. Read with me in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Abram comes to realize there is a one true God, a God outside of the system of the idols that his father is caught up in. And Terah dies when the family is in Haran and the, and the call is renewed. Go to the land that I will show you. Abram at that point is halfway there. And it's easy to settle down in halfway obedience, is it? isn't it? It's easy to stay. Where, well, I'm, I'm coming along the journey. I'm kind of there. I'm sort of there. Halfway there. Halfway obedience for Abram would have been comfortable, would have been familiar. He knew the trades and what to do there in terms of the selling and, and the making of profit. Halfway obedience, he could have settled down. He's 75 years old when he hears this call and he decides, I'm going to be 100% for this one true God. I will go. Why? Because he believes the promise. All people will be blessed because of you. And so Abram decides to go in full obedience. Go to the land that I will show you. I'm struck by that sentence. I hope you notice the peculiarity there. Not go to the land that we discussed. Go to the land that we planned out, that I have shown you. Go to the land that I will show you. Abram doesn't know where he's going when he starts. He doesn't know all the steps. All he knows is the next step. And that is exactly the way God leads you. Don't demand of God that you know the entire journey, that you see all the destination, that he unfolds your life like a map so that you can check off, yes, I'll go for this, not that, sorry, not that, yes, this. That's not the way God works. He says, this is next. Say yes. This is yes. This is next. Say yes. You ask God for the next thing. And when he shows you the next thing, you say yes to that. Maybe that next thing is to deal with a habit or to pick up your Bible more regularly or to forgive the brother or to overcome that hurt or to give back dishonest gain. What's the next thing? That's what we say yes to. And that's what Abram is saying yes to. God burst into his life at 75. And years later, God burst back. Turn your pages over to chapter 22. Abram is now Abraham. He is an elderly man, 
A son has been born in his old age, a miraculous arrival, and now a test comes. Verse 2 of chapter 22, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. How could this possibly be, be the will of God? Abraham recognizes that this is the son of promise and now God has him sacrifice him on an altar. But he says yes there too. Abraham is, is, is experiencing one of those moments of faith where he climbs up into the lap of God and he says, God, I don't get this. I don't understand it and I don't pretend to like it, but I'm committed to obeying you and I have no plan B. Now the book of Hebrews looks back on this scene and says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. What expansive faith. He says, this son is a miracle to me in the first place, and so if I have to kill him and God's going to give him back to me through resurrection, well, I'll accept that miracle as well. He is willing to see beyond human limitations just to simply trust God. But God didn't want Isaac to be killed. God wanted Abraham to be tested. And the test was so that Abraham would forever have the answer to this question, do I love God or do I just love the stuff that God gives me? Will I trust God when God disappoints me? And Abraham proves himself to himself as he says yes to God. But Isaac asks the crucial, crucial question for all time. As they're walking up to that altar, Isaac looks around and he goes, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? Centuries will go by when John the Baptist, standing in that same region, looks up from the river Jordan and sees Jesus on the banks. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. See, this is a rehearsal for the time when God the Son will be on that cross and there will not be a last-minute reprieve. The plan will be carried out. This takes us to the second foundational person in Genesis, Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have two sons, Esau the older and Jacob the younger. And that brings us to the third foundational person, Jacob, whose name means cheater. And he lived up to that name. Jacob is the guy who cuts corners. Jacob is his mother's favorite, even though the father prefers Esau, the outdoorsy kind. And even though Esau was great with a bow and arrow and wonderful with a spear, let's just say he wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. One day he comes in hungry. And in chapter 25, we see the story of how he comes in hungry, and evidently Jacob is the chef of the family. He had made some stew. And find chapter 25, verse 33. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate it and drank and got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. He sold for a bowl of stew the double portion. That was the birthright, to double the inheritance. But with the birthright came the blessing and the covenant. And Jacob tricks his father Isaac into giving him that blessing, that covenant. God honors that reception in the midst of all of this. And, and Jacob, sensing that things were not going to be going well for him in this place anymore, hightails it out of there 
after cheating his brother and lying to his father, hightails it out of there to go find a wife. Years go by. And with many years of intrigue with his future father-in-law, and he comes back eventually with two wives and 11 sons. And he has, upon his return, an encounter with a mystical man. Go to chapter 32. Years have gone by now, and finally Jacob and his families are coming back to meet Esau again. They want to reunite. He doesn't know how that reception will go, but he's not particularly confident. He keeps his families on the other side of the water so maybe they can be protected in case there's trouble. And while he's alone, someone meets him. Chapter 32, verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? And Jacob answered, and Jacob, he answered, and he said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome Israel means contends with God. And that now becomes the family name that will be the national name. And soon Rachel, uh, Rachel Jacob's wife, gives him the twelfth son, Benjamin. But the focus of the story actually moves to Benjamin's brother, Joseph. That's the fourth foundational person. His story begins in chapter 37 and goes to the very end of the book. Joseph is the link that connects this family to the nation. Up until Joseph, the story is just about the family, but by the end of the story of Joseph, the family is in Egypt. They've entered at about 70 people, but by Exodus chapter 1, where we'll pick up the story next week, there are hundreds of thousands of people. A nation has incubated in the land of Egypt. You see, Israel, Jacob, spoils Joseph to the point where he's the envy of his brothers and his brothers react violently. They sell him into slavery and he eventually ends up in Egypt where he has an encounter with a lustful woman and the law and he ends up in jail. You'd think that he would be discouraged and bitter, but he's not. Years go by as he's in prison there and Pharaoh has a dream, and he hears that there is a prisoner who can interpret dreams. And so uh, Joseph is brought to Pharaoh's court. He interprets the dream, and he says, Pharaoh, here's the meaning of your dream. There will be seven years of plenty, but after that, seven years of famine. And Pharaoh sees something great in this young man. And he promotes him to be the second in the kingdom so that he can organize the response of the nation to get ready for the famine. And that's just what he does. And sure enough, seven years later, famine hits. It's spread throughout the region. In the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family is, famine has struck. They hear that there's food down in Egypt and they come hoping to take advantage of generosity and receive some food. They don't recognize their former brother there now the powerful person in Egypt, but he recognizes them. And through a series of events, he orchestrates so the family moves into Egypt. And they move into Egypt because Joseph recognizes that what, God, what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. 
God is orchestrating a way for this family to be rescued. Why? So that the plan and history of salvation can be kept on track. And Joseph and his father, Jacob, both die in Egypt. They ask that their bones be brought back to the promised land, thinking that it won't be very long. But in reality, it's 400 years. And in bondage, the nation takes shape. At first, they're honored guests. They're given the best area of the land for their flocks and herds. But over time, they are enslaved. And it is that very slavery which keeps them separate. It is the shame of being the servants of the larger population which enables them not to intermingle. And because they retain their distinct quality as the people of God, the story of salvation is on track. Next week we'll pick up that story and see the great escape. But first, let's hear the message of Genesis. Without God, you cannot understand the world around you. Without God, you cannot interpret the events of your life. The God we worship is always prior and is always present. He is always working out his plan, and his plan is good. It's our salvation. Nothing can divert his will, but he works his will through those who obey. And the message is, let us be those who obey. Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Lord, we thank you that you are outside and above time and space. We thank you that you spoke and everything that is came to be because it puts us in right perspective and enables us to be humbled before you and to be readied to say yes to your will. So like these characters of history gone by, we pray that we too sense your nearness, that we understand your guidance and help us to be those who say yes when called to obey. Dismiss us with your blessing, and this week help us to represent you well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.